The title this morning, Why did God, after commanding those Old Testament sacrifices, tell the psalmist that he didn't delight in any of them? The text is Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls, and then this interesting phrase, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. You think, what in the world is that? If those things sanctify for the purification of the flesh, okay, how much more, here's the contrast, will the blood of Christ, not bulls, goats, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience? See the other, purify the flesh, the end of 13. Now, purify our conscience from dead works to to serve the living God. Let's pray. You're, You're faithful forever, perfect in love. Thank you for the way you attend to your church. Even if we walked into this place thinking... We were just going to be part of a congregation and witness a church service. In your grace, you want to work through your word to, to, give, uh, to give these stony hearts of ours spiritual flesh and life and a taste for things eternal. And so come with these words from these strange verses and make truth alive and vivid in our souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I should first of all establish the premise that I made in the title. Why did God, after commanding those Old Testament sacrifices, tell the psalmist he didn't delight in any of them? Is that true, for one thing? Many Christians aren't quite sure what to do with the references in the Old Testament that reveal God's um, lack of delight, lack of pleasure in the Old Covenant sacrificial system. And these references cover a variety of circumstances. Some are prophetic, messianic passages, that is, looking forward to the coming of Christ Others, like references to God's beloved King David, the man after God's own heart, repenting of sin. And you can see those. I put them both on the same slide. 
Psalm 40, verse 6 and 7. In sacrifice and offering, you, you have not, that's the important part, you have not delighted. But you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. And then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. And you can continue on through that. It's called a messianic psalm portraying Christ and his coming ministry. But the, the idea here, God the Son saying in sacrifice and offering, you, you have not delighted. And then you can look at these words from David in Psalm 51, 16, for, for you, you will not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. There are a lot of passages like that, but I've chosen these two with with a specific purpose in mind. The first passage deals with those mysterious prophetic words of the Messiah. And they make this sweeping statement, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. Notice, have not delighted. When was Father God not delighted? And those words from God the Son reveal the Father was never delighted in old covenant sacrifices and offerings. Not ever. There are no time limitations on those strong messianic words in sacrifice and offering. You have not delighted. The second reference is is equally decisive on the issue because it deals with the prayer of repentance of beloved King David, the man after God's own heart. And I point that out because we all know there are piles of references where the prophets chide Israel for thinking she could just blandly throw around sacrifices willy-nilly and then continue in their sin. We all get that, that God rejects that. But these aren't references like that. This is David, the man after God's own heart, pleading and seeking restoration, repentantly, on God's terms. This is David under the Spirit's inspiration, revealing that even under the very best conditions, God wasn't taking great delight in sacrifices and offerings, even from a truly contrite heart. This is a problem. In other words, there was something in in the very nature of those sacrifices and offerings themselves that failed to please Father God. Think about that. What makes that a bit hard to explain is, of course... God is the one who commanded those sacrifices and offering. He prescribed them. And it it leaves God looking a little schizophrenic. Our Hebrews text is going to deal with two issues. First, it reveals the divine but limited purpose of those old covenant Sacrifices and ceremonies. 
It isn't that they accomplished nothing. We're going to find that out. And second, our text is going to reveal why God never delighted in those sacrifices in themselves and never could delight in those sacrifices, even though he commanded them. And both of those issues are dealt with in contrast to a new covenant in which Father God takes eternal joy. So you all okay? That's where we're going this morning. Point number one. Father God's delight in the Son's priesthood is rooted in the access that it provides for sinners. Look at 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, it's that, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Now, the impact of what I just underlined, It'll be lost on us, unless we're willing, Sunday morning, early as it is, to do the mental work that the text demands in comparing the new covenant system with the old. See, what did those old covenant sacrifices, we looked at them last week, both in the holy place and in the holy of holies, what did they accomplish for sinners bringing their offerings? What did the people gain by those sacrifices? They did gain something. The answer isn't complicated. What they gained is they regained access into the tabernacle or later the temple because they would be banned until they brought the appropriate sacrifice. They couldn't come and worship. Their sacrifice being offered, they could come again and worship with the people. They could worship God without fear of divine judgment. They were no longer banned from the company of those worshiping in the tabernacle. And all of that was valuable as far as it went. Family life, covenant keeping were all fortified. The community was bound more closely together. The law of God was once again heard in a collective fashion. So, so, as a result of those sacrifices, goats, bulls, lambs, as a result of those sacrifices, the people could have the ban lifted from entering the tabernacle with the other worshipers. And that was it. That's what they got. The people were treated as clean, rather than defiled. In the case of certain sins, the penalty of being exiled to dwell outside the camp, we're going to look at that in a minute, that penalty was lifted through those sacrifices. There was access provided by the sacrificial ministry of the priests. And that was important. And it was good. But it was all earthly. They regained admittance to an earthly tabernacle. 
they could gather again with the people. But the people were all those fellow wanderers in the wilderness. You could plot their location on any map. It was all earthly. And the problem there is God has never really lodged in any of those earthly places. He revealed himself to his people in these earthly places for their benefit, but the scriptures are really clear. You can't put God in a, in, in a physical structure and say, there, that, that's where he lives now. Solomon dedicates the temple. There never was a grander structure, and as he's dedicating the temple, these are his words. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Good for you, Solomon. What fanfare, what ceremony, the gold, the silver, the, the curtains, the incense, the fine carvings, the stones. The people are excited. They did all of it at God's command, and Solomon is at least wise enough. Read the text. He prays. Yes, he lifts his hands toward heaven as he prays. And he says, but, but you don't live here. This, this, this can't hold you. You can't get close to God, so the sacrifice is offered. I can come back into the tabernacle. I have access to worship with the people. I'm in the tabernacle, later the temple. But you can't get close to God just because you're in the tabernacle or the temple. Now, keep all of this in mind as we read again the opening verses of our text. But when Christ appeared, contrast, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation, later in our text, our writer will flesh out all those details calling our attention to an eternal redemption. Last part of verse 12. But, but for now, he's, he's laboring to shift our attention to a realm entered by our Messiah, our high priest, a location, a destination that he says, it isn't located in the Middle East anywhere. So unlike the old covenant... Our Lord's priestly accomplishment, it provided access for purified sinners that isn't in some earthly tabernacle or temple. He says in verse 11, it's not even, look at this, not even of this creation. This is the same, this is where Peter, he picks this idea up. The same, the same access that he talked about. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Look at To an inheritance that is imperishable. You can look all over for that tabernacle. You won't find it anywhere. The temple's been destroyed. It's not going to be rebuilt. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, 
kept in heaven, right? Not of this creation. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Paul describes the same thing in, in Ephesians. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He has to throw that in real quick. Raised us up with him and, look at, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the priests would come, they offer their sacrifices. And what you get is, you're not banned anymore. You can come into the tabernacle. You can worship with the people. You're treated as though you were actually made clean by the blood of that goat and bull. Later in this epistle, the writer is going to tell us in Hebrews, of course, it never removed any sins. But God treated them as clean. And they had access. Now, our writer says, but when our high priest came sacrificing his own blood. The access he provides isn't to an earthly tabernacle. The access he provides for sinners like us is to a place not created with human hands. There's an eternal inheritance that's kept for you, seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. This promise to be revealed fully at the last time. He says, okay, do you see the difference? <laughs> do you see the difference? Kill a goat, come into a tent. Christ our high priest into the heavenlies. Our writer in Hebrews doesn't even bother to take the time to state the obvious. There was no earthly priest with any animal sacrifice who can take us into heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's the eternal access gained by our Redeemer, the High Priest. It is forever unchangeable. This is why, by the way, very significantly, a lot of people wonder about this. John gets this vision of the New Jerusalem. It's a vision coming down. And there's something he notices about it. I was going to say, I'll bet, but I guess you shouldn't say that. I'll wager most of you, as, as astute and holy as you are, didn't know this was in the New Testament. He sees the New Jerusalem coming down, and immediately something catches his attention. Here's what he notices. You see it? No temple in the New Jerusalem. We're done with that. Through Christ, access into the heavenlies. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. All right, point number two. Father God's delight in the Son's priesthood is rooted in the nature of the sacrifice that he offered. Hebrews 9, 12. He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means, by means he's going to talk. Before it was the place where we have access to. Under the old covenant, it's the tabernacle. Under the new covenant, 
It's to the right hand of the Father, heaven itself. So the, the, the access granted through the covenants is totally different. Now he's going to talk about the means, what's offered. By means of the blood of goats and calves. He didn't do that. By means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The old covenant was anchored in the blood of, it says, goats and calves. The new covenant is anchored in Christ's own blood. Here, here's the difference. There is no love demonstrated in the blood of goats and calves. Think about it. No goat ever volunteered for sacrifice. You get what I'm saying? There's no willingness. There's no love demonstrated. No love for the guilty or no devotion to the God. Goat didn't care. The priests offering those sacrifices were just doing their duty. If they did it improperly, by the way, the penalty was death. So there's severe motivation to do this right. They were Levites. So by simple genetics, that was their assignment. The priests never knew the names of most of the people who came with their sacrifice. The animal has no clue. It doesn't volunteer. The priest is doing his job. It's his assignment. And our, our writer, he, he can't wait to remind us that Christ entered into God's holy presence as our forerunner. Not by means of the blood of bulls and goats, but by means of his own blood. Why, why, why did he do this? We ought to ask that question. Thinking Christians must ask that question. This is where the contrast between the old and the new shines with, with such piercing vividness. Why? Why did he do this? Here's what we know. He shed his blood willingly. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my, my own accord. That means my own choice. We know that. Here's what else we know. He shed his own blood in love and devotion to Father God. We'll look at these verses later in our journey through this book. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, is this a great Christmas text or what? When Christ came into the world, he said sacrifices and offerings. We read these words from the song. He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. So in other words, there's, there's the Son before his incarnation in his eternal state of the Trinity, the Godhead. A body you have prepared for me. In burnt offering and sin offering you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God. Willingly, of his own choice, to please the Father, out of devotion to the Father. There's a third thing. 
that we're supposed to notice. Christ shed his own blood with a passionate love for sinful mankind. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Loved me. Gave himself for me. Notice those last words. It's true, but it's not really enough to say Christ died for us. They can convey the idea of just some kind of legal transaction. A debt needed paying. Father God's justice needed satisfying. Jesus was the solution to my sin dilemma. And then, and then we hear Paul... Then we hear Paul choking back tears. He didn't just shed his blood for mankind. No, he loved me. Gave himself for me. No calf, no goat ever did that. Paul would say the cross of Christ is not general, it's personal. And it is pondering this merciful, transcendent love. He said, it's reoriented my life. His, his love for me is magnetic. It, it draws out my love. The world has no such love for my greatest good. I've joyfully left the world behind. So here's what our writer is saying. Both in the access granted and in the nature of the sacrifice offered... The chasm between the sacrifices and the covenants is, is, is massive. Christ's sacrifice was himself. He shed his blood willingly. He shed his blood in devotion to the Father. He shed his blood out of his infinite love for me. Three. Oh, man, look at that clock. Don't look. It's ten after ten. Father God's delight in the Son's priesthood is rooted in the kind of cleansing accomplished. I want to look at those strange verses, 13 and 14, as we wrap up. For if the blood of goats and bulls, and then the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if those things sanctify for the I want to look at this, purification of the flesh. How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, so it's not flesh, conscience, from dead works to serve the living God. i got to hurry. Uh, central to understanding all of those old covenant sacrifices is, is this realization. You need to know this. All of those Old Testament sacrifices were assigned a value by God they never actually possessed in themselves. Everybody get that? They were assigned a value by God that they never actually possessed in themselves. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. 
but they were treated as though they did. So as shadowy pointers to the genuinely effective work of Christ, God, God treated those Old Testament sacrifices as though they accomplished something that they never actually accomplished at all. Think about what a shadow is. I mean, a shadow... It, a shadow depends on something else for its existence, right? You're standing outside, the bus comes and pulls up, it's a sunny day, and as you're standing on the sidewalk, you were standing in the sun, and then a double-decker bus comes and stops, and now you're standing in the shade. You're in the shadow of the bus. When the bus pulls away, you don't have to erase the shadow, right? I mean, it's not like the shadow stays there on its own. It, it has no... Am I being too technical for you? It has no independent existence in itself. You stand there, the bus goes by, the shadow hits you. That's not nearly as bad as the bus hitting you. So these things, our writer calls them, he calls them all shadows. They didn't possess the effectiveness in and of themselves. though most people won't bother tracing this out, our text gives a beautiful illustration of this point. And it's revealed in those strange words in verse 13. The sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. And the way this somehow was able to, 13, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. The ashes of a heifer purifying the flesh. Not many would take the time to look up the details, but they're all in Numbers chapter 19. And if you took the time to read it through, this chapter deals almost exclusively with defilement, get this, defilement from contact with dead bodies. Either through violence, or through accident, or through a death in the household, any contact with a corpse made the one who had such contact defiled. Or unclean. And there were consequences. You were banned from entrance into the camp. You had to remain outside the camp of the Israelites. Think about that. Grandma, whatever, died. And you went in and you were concerned and you wanted to make sure she's okay and you took her hand. And you're banned from the camp, the Israelites. I mean, that seems weird. Does that seem weird to anybody else? No access to friends, no access to loved ones, no access to the tabernacle where the worship of God took place. So there were these serious effects to this defilement. But there's a solution. Ashes of a heifer, of course. The ashes from these calves that were sacrificed were kept. And they were mixed with water. The priest would go and wash the defiled one who had touched the corpse. And this would accomplish, 13, the purification of the flesh. What did that mean? Well, fellowship with friends and family. 
was restored, access to the camp was reestablished, you could be with the other people, you could once again enter the tabernacle, you could worship God. And no one dares probably say it out loud, but almost everyone in this room, I know it, is thinking, this is nuts. I mean, under normal conditions, a corpse doesn't actually defile anyone. And even if it did, you can't seriously tell me that the ashes of a heifer will take care of that situation. I mean, the truth is, watch the news. When we hear of relief agencies or medical workers helping out in ghastly areas of genocide and starvation in the world, we don't think of them as defiled people. We think of them as saintly people, don't we? What's going on here? What is going on? We can't pretend this isn't in our Bibles. And the answer is, God is treating, God is treating contact with a corpse as though it defiled the flesh. And God is treating those ashes of a heifer as though they accomplished the purifying of that defiled flesh. In other words, what's happening here is God is temporarily assigning a value to those things that they never really had, not to contaminate and certainly not to purify. And the next big question that everyone in the room wants to ask is, why is he doing this? Why is God doing all of this? Here's the truth. The truth is all these people really did have a defilement problem. Not one they saw. Only its contamination was invisible. The truth is they all needed a cleansing that will come about through the sacrificial death of another redeemer, but that too is unseen as of yet. So hear me. If you wanted to train if you wanted to teach a people who had no New Testament that sin was so serious, its wages were death. Death, remember? Its wages were death. And that such terrible defilement could not be self-removed by the individual... And if you wanted to show how that sin separated from God and all that is holy, how might you go about it with a group of people? And that's what this and all the other old covenant sacrifices and rituals and washings and regulations about garments and grains and things being mixed and things being kept separate all those feast days and ceremonies and altars and regulations and tabernacles, they were all divinely assigned a temporary value that they never actually possessed in themselves. And the whole reason was, our writer wants us thinking all of this through, not to bring us in bondage again under the old covenant, the big words, opening words of verse 14, how much more? The emphasis here is the sacrifice of our high priest. 
unlike all those Old Testament sacrifices and ceremonies, unlike those, the sacrifice of our high priest and his own blood did have incredible power in and of itself. It didn't point to something else. It was the reality everything else was pointing to. Fourteen, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This isn't God assigning value to something that it didn't possess. This is God doing the sacrificing himself. This is God doing the actual work. This is God opening up the actual access to his presence. This is cleansing that isn't merely the outward reestablishing of tabernacle fellowship and worship, the purification of the flesh. External. This power of Christ, once for all sacrifices, cleanses inside the sinner. It brings the spirit of adoption into our minds and hearts, children of God. That's why... Unlike all those old covenant sacrifices, that's why Father God delights in the work of his son. That's why this sacrifice works eternally. How can I say it in a way that's rememberable? This is the kind of thing we talk about so much in the church. Let me give it a shot. God is more pleased with the single sacrifice of his son on the cross. He is more pleased with that than he is displeased by all the accumulated sin of every person who has ever drawn a breath on planet Earth. God is more pleased with the death of his son on the cross than he is displeased with all the accumulated sin of every person on earth. This is why, this is why he is the propitiation of our sins, John says, not only our sins, the sins of the whole world. We have, we gather, we sing songs of praise to our Lord and thankfulness to our Lord, and so we should. All of it pales to the delight Father God has in the sacrifice of his son. And he wants the church through ages to come to gather around the throne and give praise to the Lamb. Everyone said? Let's pray.